My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honours of your name. Amen. How would you go about describing the colour red to someone who was born blind? How would you try to convey the beauty of the hallelujah chorus to someone who'd never heard a note? And how would you try to describe the glory of God to a fallen man like me? God is so big, so strong, so good, so holy, so vast, so complex, so multi-layered, so technicolored, that how would you convey him to a man who sees life through 50 shades of grey? What is the glory of God? Well, at its simplest, it's what we see when God reveals his character to us. And no book in the Bible puts God's character on display for us to look at and to wonder at and to admire and to adore quite as vividly as the book of Revelation. I don't know what you make of the book of Revelation. It seems to me to be a kind of bold, vivid description of of everything that's going on behind the scenes in our world today. It's kind of the other side of the coin of the book of Acts. Acts gives us the headlines. Acts portrays the church's mission and the growth of the gospel and the experience of persecution as we see it and as we experience it day in and day out, as it appears to us on the stage of history. Revelation gives us a little glimpse behind the scenes so that we can begin to realize that there is an unseen spiritual battle going on but that explains the headlines. The battle raging between good and evil, light and darkness, the Lord Jesus and Satan. And so it goes on day in, day out. Acts and Revelation being worked out simultaneously through the course of human history. I want you to come with me to two chapters, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. That seems a ridiculously big task, doesn't it, for the next few minutes? My favourite church for preaching in Suffolk where I grew up was a church where they had a clock on the wall that went backwards. We we never were that kind of good at being forward in Suffolk, but this church went backwards. I discovered very quickly the longer I preached, the earlier we finished. And it's not really a lesson I ever got over. So three things I want to share with you from these two chapters. First of all, the glory of God spells awe. Everything today is awesome, Well, today we're going to meet someone who is. The glory of God spells authority, and in a world that is profoundly anti-authoritarian, this is going to be a bit of a shock to the system. And the glory of God spells adoration. And if in God's kindness we were all in our hearts to find ourselves on our knees at the end of this passage, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? So let's think first of all about the glory of God spelling awe. 
Uh, I want you to look how um, chapter 4 begins. After this I looked. After this is kind of a catchphrase of John's. It, it tells us the story's moving on. That the vision of the risen Lord Jesus that we witnessed in chapter 1 is finished. The writing of the letters to the seven churches that take up chapters 2 and 3 are over. A new act in the drama is about to begin. After this I looked, caught up in the spirit and wide-eyed with wonder. John looks through this open door and what does he see? He sees a throne. There before me was a throne in heaven. Now, now, please don't do this at home, but, but we know what happens when we try to look at the sun. It's like that for John. The dazzling splendor of this vision can, makes it difficult for him to see clearly. There's definitely a throne, and yes, there's definitely someone seated upon that throne. We discover that this is God the Father, but what is he like? John can't quite make him out. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. The one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Inviting John into heaven is a little bit like inviting my wife, Pippa, into Hill Samuel. She doesn't know which way to look first. Every way as she turns, there are... Jewels and precious stones and gold and silver and things that make my credit card melt in my pocket. Now in this vision, John, God is surrounded with flashing brilliance, crystal clear, to, to symbolize his purity, blood red, to express the power of his judgments. Here is a God who cannot tolerate sin. We, we see that in the seven lamps of fire that are burning and the flashes of lightning and the rumbles of thunder. Here is God the Holy One. It's the psalmist who declares, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Encircling the throne, there's a rainbow, translucent green in color. Why a rainbow? Because for the people of God, the storm is over. Jesus has stood in the sinner's place. The price is paid. And now the sun is shining again. Yet even now, stretched out before the throne, verse 6, is what seems to be a sea of glass. Clear as crystal. It all serves to heighten the sense of God's separateness from his creation. Here is the one who is altogether only, uh, altogether other, majestic and merciful, glorious and pure, here and yet forever beyond us. This is the glory of God. But God is not alone, you see. Around the central throne, John sees 24 other thrones, upon which are seated 24 elders, dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. We've met them before. Let me suggest that they represent the church in every age, Old Testament and New. And what about these strange four living creatures resembling a lion, an ox, a man and an eagle, covered with eyes in front and behind? We've met creatures like them in the Bible before, in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Each of them stands on one side of the throne, ready to serve God at a moment's notice. Who are they? Well, they're kind of symbolic of the created world, a vast organism throbbing with the ceaseless activity of God, existing for the glory of God. 
And bring all this together, and what do we have in these 24 elders and these four living creatures? We have God's people and God's world, his creation and his new creation, nature and church joining together in the praise of him who lives forever. Notice that John doesn't just record the sights, he also records the sounds of heaven. Look at the end of verse 8. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I don't know if you've ever thought of heaven as a Rolling Stones concert before, but give it a go for a moment. The whole place filled with light and sound and every fibre of our being is engaged. And what are they singing? We can't get no satisfaction? No, they're deliriously satisfied. Listen to their song, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, as you discovered, I had an extensive training and preparation for ministry on Saturday. It's before I went to watch Ipswich Town, getting beaten again in the afternoon. So it was just the morning, really. I learned one thing, just one theological concept that has stood by me for the whole of my ministry. We can capture it in three letters, W. O-W. Wow. You ever experienced the wow factor? Maybe a beautiful landscape or a sunset. It may be a majestic building if you're young. It might be a beautiful girl or a handsome boy. Whatever it is, this something or this someone simply takes your breath away. Well, I want to tell you that God's like that. No one possesses the wow factor like him. And nowhere possesses the wow factor like heaven. And do you see what is, what's happening to us here? John is instilling in us a sense of reverence and awe for God. This vision of his glory, the splendor of the royal court, the thunderous song of creation, all captured here for us so that we may bow before the living one and surrender our hearts to him today. Heaven is so different from earth. It's not about us. It's all about him. Now there are huge lessons for John's first century readers, and huge lessons for us 21st century readers. We need to learn and relearn the fear of God. When uh, the great 19th century statesman William Gladstone addressed the students here in Oxford, he was asked, do you foresee things in the 20th century that concern you? And he replied, yes. Men losing the fear of God. And he was right. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom which makes you wonder whether we live in an incredibly knowledgeable but astonishingly foolish generation. The glory of God spells awe. 
But secondly, the glory of God spells authority. I don't know if you've ever been to the uh, cabinet war office under the streets of London. They're perfectly preserved for posterity is the nerve center of Britain's wartime struggle against Hitler. Perfectly preserved, but totally empty, just a shell. And we can see where Churchill slept and where Churchill worked. But it's not alive. It's just a monument to a magnificent past. Well, this passage couldn't be more different because here in Revelation 4, John is summoned not to the cabinet war office but to the control centre of the universe and it's teeming with life and right at the heart of this nerve centre is this throne. John mentions this throne in almost every chapter of this book. He mentions it more than 40 times, far more than any other book in the New Testament. 17 times he mentions it in these two chapters, on the throne, before the throne, surrounding the throne. If nothing else, God's glory is about his absolutely sovereign right over his creation. Many thoughts come tumbling to mind as we reflect on this throne, the splendor of the royal court, the breathtaking worship of heaven. But the thing that sticks in John's mind is the sovereign power of almighty God. This throne is the source of ultimate power and authority in our universe. Now, if we know anything about the Bible, we we can remember a little bit, maybe, about the the situation facing John and his first-century readers. Life is not a bed of roses for them. It looks to them very much as if the only power that really matters is is invested in the Roman Empire. But no. Behind and beyond the power of Rome stands the almighty power of God himself. And that's true for us today, just as much. Do you remember the hype when Barack Obama was first elected as President of the United States in 2008? It's been fascinating to stand and witness the most powerful man in the world and power slipping through his fingers like sand. So who is going to get the better of worldwide terrorism? Who is going to be able to solve global warming? Who is going to be able to bring peace to the Middle East? Who is going to be able to answer the prayers that Dan was articulating for us just a few moments ago? Where are we meant to look? Are we meant to look to the White House or Number 10 or somewhere in Europe? John's looking in a very different direction. Verse 2 of chapter 4. At once I was in the Spirit, and there was a, before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. This is so relevant to John's readers, and it's so relevant to us. When we read the headlines or we watch the news, we're not to think that evil is rampant and out of control in our world. We're not to think the world is sliding into absolute chaos whether we're talking about emperors in Rome or presidents in Washington or prime ministers in Downing Street, there's only one throne that matters in this universe. And God's seated on it. There are some difficult scenes ahead in the rest of Revelation. But before we plunge into the drama of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of judgment, before we have to do battle with the beasts, we're taken on this guided tour of heaven, and given a fresh vision of the God who sits upon the throne. 
As Amy Carmichael, great missionary, put it memorably, God doesn't have problems. He just has plans. Now before we move on, listen again with me, will you, as heaven rocks with the sound of his praise. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have his their being. All this is his. It was made by him, it was made for him, and he's not afraid to rule it. The glory of God spells authority. Well, by now you're looking at your watch and longing for lunch. We're tempted to think at this point we've seen it all. This must be the pinnacle of divine revelation, but hang in there just for a few moments. In the words of another US former president, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because if we were to slip out at this point, we'd miss the biggest lesson of them all. Because the glory of God spells adoration. In chapter 5, the throne room drama moves on. Look at verse 1. Then I saw. The scene remains the same, but something new catches John's attention. In the right hand of Almighty God, he sees a scroll, a scroll of unparalleled importance, not the memoirs of yesterday's celebrities. No, the contents of this scroll could hardly be more important to the future of our world, to our future. This scroll describes the world's destiny in the purposes of God. It contains his redeeming plans for planet Earth. The blueprint of the church's future is here. The snag is the scroll is still sealed. God's plans as yet are unexecuted. His purposes have not yet been realized. And so the cry rings out to the furthest reaches of the universe. Verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And like the prince in the story of Cinderella, searching for the owner of the glass slipper, the search goes on. Every corner of creation is examined in the hunt for someone who's got the right, the authority, the power to take the scroll and to implement its contents. Region after region is examined and found wanting. No angel in the sky, no prophet here on earth, no saint from the realm of the departed is found who is competent to take the scroll and do what it says. And notice with me, will you, John's reaction in verse 4 of chapter 5. I wept and wept. He just breaks down. It's extraordinary. He makes no attempt to be English here. Well, maybe that's because he isn't. He just doesn't attempt to hide his emotions. It all comes spilling out. No one is found who is fit to take the scroll from the hand of God. And John is heartbroken. Why? Well, from his rocky outpost on Patmos, he looks around and he doesn't like what he sees. He's just dictated letters from the Lord Jesus to the seven churches of Asia. They don't make easy reading. The storm clouds of persecution is gathering. The false teaching is undermining the church's ministry. The heady days of Pentecost are over. Complacency seems to be blunting the church's mission. There needs to be a way forward here which means that there must be someone who can open the scroll. 
What if God's glorious plans of redemption were doomed to lie unopened in some vault in heaven? What if God had nothing more to say to planet Earth? What if there's no hope for humankind? John is right to weep. But praise God, his tears aren't the end of the story. One of the elders speaks up. There is one who, there is one, there is one who has triumphed. There is one who is able to open the scroll, verse 5. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Oh, I love that description. Rooted as it is in the Old Testament, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah from the royal line of King David. It's hard to imagine words that could breathe hope back into John's broken heart like these. He can breathe again. And when he turns to look at this lion, what does he see? Not a lion, but a lamb. Terrible beauty. And a lamb looking as if it had been slain. John is shocked and his language is designed to heighten the sense of shock that we feel. What is this? One moment we're confronted with this mighty picture of the all-conquering lion and then we come face to face with the humility of a lamb that has been slain. And what's going on here, we ask? It is the glory of God. The glory of God is seen supremely in the paradox of the gospel. The victory of God is seen in the humiliation of his son, The lion assumes the meekness of the lamb and dies in order to overcome. He has triumphed. Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell. How has he done this? By dying on the cross for us. I don't know about you. I have spent so much of my life this far away from disaster. I am dogged by shame. And how glad I am that though I can't carry the weight of my shame, I know someone who can. And now he is entitled to take the scroll and to deliver its contents. Do you see the point? The redeeming death of Jesus is the very key to human history. Look at verse 7. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's also kind of resonating with Jesus' mandate to the church and the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So you need to go and make disciples of all nations. The emergence of the Lamb changes everything. Look with me at verse 13. A new day is dawn. From now on, John will always refer to the throne as the throne of God and of the Lamb. From now on, God will rule his universe through the person of his Son. We can never make too much of Jesus. What happens when the Lamb approaches the throne and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne while the whole thing moves up a gear as the hosts of heaven break out in the mightiest chorus of praise ever recorded in human history. Verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Gosh, I thought I heard a hallelujah there. No, of course, this is an FIEC church. 
Listen, if, if the praise of chapter 4 is the anthem of creation, then the chorus of chapter 5 is the song of redemption. If Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, he's also the hero of heaven. And I want to urge you to let him be your hero as well. How often I go through life with a full diary and an empty heart. And I long that my diary would be a little less full and my heart would be a whole lot less empty. The story is told of a famous Methodist preacher called William Sangster. He visited London, he was visited in London by an old Dorset farmer, uncle of his. Sangster thought he'd give the old man a treat. He managed to wangle some front row seats for the Messiah at the Albert Hall. And as the choir soared with the words, and he shall reign forever and ever, Sangster looked across at the old man. There were tears running down his cheeks. That's my saviour they're singing about, he said. And he's my saviour too. I praise God for Revelation 4. Behold the throne. But listen, I need Revelation 5. Behold the Lamb. See, if we want to understand anything about the glory of God, it's not enough to see the throne. We need to see Jesus. He is the one in whom the glory of the invisible God becomes magnificently visible. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. And it's not just the razzmatazz, the fireworks, the miracles and the signs and the wonders. It's just who he is. He is the glory of God. As we close, why have I brought you here this morning? What has all this got to do with us? Well, I know you've got this massive building project on the go. I can see even now some of you look quite excited. Some of you look mildly terrified. For some of you, this will be the biggest thing you've ever been involved in. There'll be times when you wonder whether you can pull it off. It will shake your faith to the core and test it to the limit. But I want this morning to remind you how big is your God. See, the bigger he appears to you, the smaller will be the problems of your project. And the more worthy you think he is, the more urgent the project will become. You see, I think we can capture the essence of this passage in one word. I think it's hope. Our hope's not in politicians. It's not in an upcoming general election. Our hope's not in church either or the FIEC. Like the seven churches of Asia, local churches come and go. Our hope is in the living God who reigns in heaven and in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Some will fail us, others will disappoint us. He never will. Revelation 4 and 5 are the reason for getting out of bed tomorrow morning. The glory of God helps us to refocus on what matters most. We don't need to be sucked in by the headlines. We don't need to be crushed by our circumstances. We do need to be more heavenly minded. 
See, the glory of God adds vibrancy to our worship, holiness to our living, generosity to our giving, urgency to our evangelism, reason for our living and hope to our dying. But it's not just hope. It's hunger as well. Do you know what the opposite of shame is? The opposite of shame is honour. How do I say this to you this morning? Jesus longs to honour you. Jesus longs to take your shame away and to put honour in its place. I long for you to be able to read Revelation and 4 and 5 and say, that is my home. That is where I belong. That is where I am headed. The day will come when shame will not even be a distant memory. And I will be blessed with honour because I am in the presence of the Lord Jesus. If we're not Christians, of course. This vision presents us with an awesome challenge. Whoever we are, Whatever we're doing, which of us is going to get the better of a God like this? Resist him. Reject him. You are bound to be overthrown in the end. Surrender to him. Put your trust in him. Follow him. And you will be blessed for time and eternity. That is the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, this is way too big for us. And I want to confess now that I don't have a mind that's big enough to embrace the truth of your glory. And I certainly don't have words noble enough to capture it but I do thank you for a pure and perfect revelation of your glory here in your written word. And I do thank you for the presence and help of a Holy Spirit who takes delight in making the glory of God known to people like us. Spirit of the living God, I appeal to you now. Fall afresh on us right now so that we can get a first glimpse, a fresh glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Amen.